0: Listening Dog Media.
1: How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ.
0: Actually being in front of an audience, however small, you learn three, four, five times as fast because there's no escape. How to DJ
1: podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds, and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45.
0: I think if you told me when I started DJing that my interactions with uh, members of the public whilst DJing would include having the gun pulled on me, I would probably have said, oh, I think I'm going to stay at home with me now.
1: He's a DJ who first played Manchester's Hacienda in 1986 his nights freedom and yellow at the boardwalk in Manchester have become a thing of legend. He DJed for the Stone Roses at Spike Island and has played all over the world. He describes his DJing philosophy as playing the best records ever made, one after the other. And in 2015 he sold his entire record collection.
0: If you can't play something that you love because it's Disrupts an audience expectation, then either be braver or find other clubs to play. Dave has them.
1: Dave, before you put your five questions, some warm up questions. When and why did you first start DJ? Uh,
0: well, when is a little bit easier to talk about. I think 1984. Um, I just left uni, uh, obviously, a massive music fan uh not really a massive fan of discotheques i've been to a lot of live music but you know i love dance music as well and uh i started because i was putting on gigs in a very small club in manchester called the man alive and i was working with um a band called big flame well two of the lads from big flame three of us putting on gigs and uh it was a very undercapitalized little activity but the bands we put on were pretty good you know we had um chuck Uh, on and That Petrol Emotion, Age of Chance. Anyway, um, we didn't have support bands uh, and they decided that instead of a support band, I should play some music to kind of warm things up. And then when the band had finished, play some music to kind of end the night. And I did that and I enjoyed it. But I didn't even think of myself as a DJ. I thought I was doing a particular job in a particular very small club. But then one night the band cancelled and um, the lab said, why don't you do the whole night? So I said, yeah. In fact, we had two weeks notice and they issued a flyer, uh, March the whatever it was, uh, all night, uh, disco party with DJ Miserable Dave. And that was literally my first proper gig. Uh, I told them that I thought that Miserable Dave was a very poor name for a DJ and nobody would come and hear anyone call that. But um, it was a small club and we had 50 people in and that was enough to fill the room and uh, my floor filler was Koo by 23 Skidoo and um, it seemed like fun so we did it started doing that once a month.
1: So were you experimenting at the time then were you learning how to mix on the job or did you put in some time in the bedroom first?
0: Well at that time um, DJ equipment in a number of clubs around Manchester the first two or three that I played in were old style Garrard decks made by Garrard. They were kind of a famous brand. They were not very speed, so you couldn't vary the speed of the music. So if it was at whatever it was at, 95 BPM or 120 BPM, that was the speed of the music. So the, the opportunity to mix the records uh, just wasn't really there. There were other clubs in Manchester, notably Legend, where the equipment was a lot more high-tech and they had technic steps. So basically, it was about blending the music. It was about putting one record into another. And the most important skill was programming. You know, what order do you play those records? And so even when I got to the Hacienda in 86, uh, there was no crossfader. So a lot of the, the kind of technical stuff that DJs are now very used to and feel the need to Um, experiment on and practice on and rehearse on for years in their bedroom actually didn't exist. It was literally having like having two domestic record players going at the same time. So actually, in terms of learning how to technically be be a DJ, um, 95% of the skill was the programming because there wasn't really any technology to master. It was just um, stop and play.
1: And in those early days, I'm guessing that you would walk the streets, go to bed at night thinking about the order of the tunes that you were going to play. I guess it would have been in your head all the time.
0: Uh, In a way, yes. I think, uh, but most importantly then, and still, uh, I do like to trust my instinct. I do like to be spontaneous. I do like to see what's working well i think in about 1985 i did a gig with a dj in manchester who had a very established reputation and he arrived with a list of the records he was going to play in the order he was going to play them at, and i was kind of really thrown by that uh, because up until that time obviously i'd only be djing 18 months or so i would never thought about doing that Uh, and i mean again in those old days you took two boxes of vinyl so that was all that you could take on the bus from Great Western Street in Mossline into town. So that's 170 pieces of vinyl. So you'd already in a way made a selection about what you were gonna play before you left the house. You couldn't take your entire record collection. You couldn't take your hard drive. You were literally taking 170 records. So the preparation was done in the days before when you decided what to put in those boxes. So when you arrived, you didn't have a huge amount to play. So you were kind of, it was then about a dialogue between what you wanted to play, i.e. what you put in your two boxes, and what the audience seemed to be enjoying and would dance to. So it was very focused and quite intense, uh, but that's how it was. And often I would start a record with no idea what I was going to play after. And that would then mean that for the three and a half or four minutes of that record, I would be flicking through my record boxes, desperately keeping one eye on the dance floor, And and trying to recognize the tunes and trying to work out what to play next.
1: Yeah, and hoping that no one was going to come and bother you and and ask for stuff.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one of the things about being a DJ is it's a public facing occupation, and there's a lot you have to learn, and a lot you can do in your bedroom, you know, uh, technically and in terms of researching music and getting hold of new music. All that is really important. But actually being in front of an audience, however small, you learn three, four, five times as fast because there's no escape. And you have to learn how to react to the crowd. You have to learn how to connect to the crowd, but also just the really mundane stuff of how you interact with people coming to bother you to play records, you know, because the general public are, on a night out, are, you know, an unpredictable bunch and they will bug you for records. They might give you a hard time. I think if you told me when I started DJing that my interactions with uh, members of the public whilst DJing would include having a gun pulled on me and having a cigarette stubbed out on my face and having a full can of beer thrown from one end of the club that hit me in the chest in the middle of playing a record, I would probably have said, oh, I think I'm going to stay at home and take, take up this writing job. But that's all those things have happened to me. What was the gun incident? (laughs) Well, I mean, the Hacienda uh, is legendary for lots of reasons. And it was full of very, very happy, good times and good vibes. But it did go a little bit wrong at the very beginning of the 90s, uh, maybe even a little bit before that. And there were gangs in the club and drugs in the club and, and characters who were really not an asset to the party in any shape or form. And uh, one night, the the hacienda DJ box door was like a stable door. You could open the the bottom and lock it, and then you could open the top as well. But we often kept it closed just because we wanted to carry on doing what we were doing, crack on. But I made a mistake one night of opening the door. I could hear banging. And there was a guy stood there with a gun. And he said, give me the records. It was about 10 to 2 on a Saturday night. I mean, I knew that the club had started to attract shady characters, but... There's nothing in the DJ training manual to teach you how to deal with uh, an incident like that. But luckily I was able to bang the door shut uh, and, and obviously my heart was beating and I was thinking, did this really happen? What was that? And, uh, I was on my own. There was like, there was nobody else around. I just had to take a deep breath and play the next record. Uh, and it wasn't really until the following morning that I thought, wow, that was was a crazy situation to have got into. And at that point, I thought, am I in the wrong job? Uh, But, I mean, this might sound a little bit pious, but I knew that 99.9% of the people coming to either the Hacienda of the Boardwalk or any other club I played at, they were coming because they were experiencing something very, very positive in their lives. And I was kind of responsible for continuing that i i love that i love making a difference i love making people happy you know manchester and, and people all over the world can have a hard time in their lives they go out at the weekend to forget that and it's the job of the Dj to help them to do that and uh, so I kind of thought for those people i can't let the badness win so I kind of thought okay it's going to keep going because djing is such a positive experience for me and the community i'm in and I'm just, you know, I'm just going to put that down to a one-off. But it was a very difficult era in Manchester.
1: Do you think, though, so, overall, do you think you
0: were having as a good a time as the crowd? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, I think that, uh, number one, I'm quite self-critical uh, of everything I do. And there have been so many nights where I felt that I'd not quite done what I wanted to do. The job wasn't quite done how I wanted it to do. I would have done things differently. And I've given myself like a seven out of 10. And then as I've been packing everything away, people have been coming up to me going, that was amazing. That was just one of the best nights out I've ever had. And I'm thinking, well, to me, it was a seven out of 10. So (laughs) there's a kind of weird disconnect there. And the other thing is, I do feel like this is a kind of weird syndrome that I have personally, which I found a name for uh, a, a writer called Jonathan Franzen. I met him and we had a conversation about this. And he said, there is such a thing as anhedonia, which is where you're in a situation and everything is aligned for you to feel happy. And somewhere in your mind and your body and your soul, you know, you should be happy but somehow you're not. It's like there's a glass between you and the experience. And I do find that it's a weird thing for a DJ to say, but I do find that hitting absolute bliss where, you know, my problems and my history and my issues and all that stuff that people have, all that chaos people have in their heads has melted away. And I felt genuinely happy and in the moment. That's only happened to me maybe three or four times in my entire career as a DJ, writer, journalist and interviewer. So I have felt actually quite disconnected from an audience, which is weird. Say going to 1989 and there's 1500 people there and they're roaring with pleasure and you feel like you're in the center of the music universe. But there's part of you that is just not there. That's a weird feeling.
1: I wonder if that makes it sound like you've always treated it as a job, and I I don't think you you would say that you've ever had a job, would you? Uh,
0: No, I don't think of it as a a job. Um, uh, Our friend Karl Marx, who obviously co-wrote the Communist Manifesto with Frederick Engels, Karl Marx said that in a mature society, there's no distinction between work and play. And I kind of feel like, although Karl Marx had no idea what a DJ did, Uh, I kind of feel like a DJ is that person whose work and play is completely and utterly at one. So I'm in a little Marxist bubble, basically. Um, I'm absolutely passionate about DJing, you know, and even what I've said about happiness, setting that aside, I've never regretted, you know, taking the opportunities and going down the path that I have.
1: Time now for the first of your five picks from the 45 in this record box all of the questions are on 45 sleeves and by the way five questions but i will be asking you at some point a question that i've always wanted to ask you
0: no let's go for this so do you need a number or something how do i choose so
1: look because of the way that things are just tell me when to stop
0: so you're flicking through the records now yes okay well stop stop there stop whatever
1: okay with technology making bad mixes difficult does the lack of jeopardy make DJing a bit less human or
0: fun yeah I think that certainly the change in the technology of DJing is absolutely huge you know and I kind of feel like there's almost in my career my lifetime as a dj there's almost been two or three different eras of djing different kinds of djing uh you know and i think that where we are now is very technical and you're right that there's you know lots of buttons that you can press to make your mixing spot on but i do think that the human element is important and i think a dj who is stuck in the technology only and isn't picking the tunes that have an emotional resonance that will connect with the crowd gets found out very quickly. The weird thing about DJing is that although you're playing other people's records, I mean, some DJs obviously don't, but by and large, you're playing other people's records. You are actually expressing your own emotion at that time. And and you do that with the music that you play. What the technical advances in recent years have done is make that vehicle by which you send that out into the world much smoother, you know? So I'm kind of in favor of it. And I I don't feel like it's become robotic uh, and and predictable. I think that um, ultimately the tunes, yeah, make an emotional resonance with people.
1: But I guess it, it can lend itself to a situation where you're ending up playing something just because it works well in terms of beat matching or whatever. Uh, rather than the, the emotion of the song.
0: I totally agree with you. And I think the other thing that tends to happen, which is similar to that, is that DJs see themselves as uh, a kind of a genre DJ. Uh, that isn't a necessarily a new thing, but it isn't something that I felt. For give you an example, Paul Van Dyke, who's like one of the big trance DJs uh, in the late 1990s, uh, and still is, you know, he's always in the, in the top 50 DJs of, of the year. Uh, in all the lists and all the magazines, I, I spent one evening with him and talking about music. And at that time, the Fuji's first album had just come out. And I was saying to him how great I thought it was and how I couldn't wait. To, there were two or three tracks I couldn't wait to play off that album. And I said, uh, will you play them? And he said, no, because I play what Paul Van Dyke plays and the audience come to hear what Paul Van Dyke plays. And the Fuji's is impossible for me. And at that moment, I thought, there was a part of me that admired the guy, you know, in some, in many, many ways. But it's another part of me that kind of felt like something had died inside him. You know, if you can't play something that you love because it disrupts an audience expectations, then either be braver or find other clubs to play.
1: Well, I suppose that kind of brings me to that question that I've always wanted to ask you, which is, why did you always plough your own furrow when you could so easily have been travelling all over the world playing straight-up house under the the sunshine that the Hacienda had bestowed upon you?
0: I think just because I I can't fake it. I really can't fake it, Chris. I have to play music I love, and uh, if I hear a record that I love and I think... It means something to me. I want to share it. It's about sharing the music and connecting with the audience. And uh, people who followed me DJing, I mean, it's obviously not many people who've been there from day one and who are still likely to come out and pay to hear me now. But people who've dipped in and out of that journey, if you like, that I've made, I think ultimately they respect the fact that, you know, the Dave Haslam of different parts of his life is a different person. You know, Muhammad Ali said the man who's the same person at 50 as he was at 20 hasn't lived. And so that's kind of how I feel. So therefore, the music that I play reflects the changes in my personality and my community and my attitudes. And so if I'm stuck in a groove, literally in a groove, or I'm stuck in an era, then how can I express myself?
1: I'm really curious about what you said about the connect disconnects, do you think that disconnected connectivity that you sort of feel like, do you think that has altered through the years from the very first time to now? No, I don't
0: think so. I think that, interestingly, I've realised that since the early 80s, I've been a journalist and a writer, and more recently, I've done a lot more writing. And I've realised that actually a writer is one step back from the world A writer is looking at what's happening in the world and has to observe, you know? Can participate, but has to observe. And I kind of feel like that's maybe one of the few connections between my writing and my DJ, is that, uh, yeah, I am one step back from the experience. Mm. Is that a place you like to be? No, not necessarily, but it's the place that I inhabit. Even on a very, very practical level, When I'm DJing, I DJ uh, straight, you know? I might have a little bit to drink, but in terms of do I enjoy it as much as the audience? Well, I enjoy playing the music as much as the audience, but I don't throw myself into the experience in the same way as the audience do. Mm. You know, in the end of the 1980s, you know, the Hacienda notoriously was full of drugs. Every club I've ever played in has been, you know, either people have been intoxicated on whatever And uh, I'm always one of the most sober people in the room when I'm DJing. And to be honest, that isn't necessarily to do with my personality, but that's just because I felt like I needed to be in control. It was, you know, you couldn't be at the hacienda and be as off your tree as the people in the audience and expect to be able to do an amazing job, you know? (laughs) Um, I remember there was one DJ who came and joined us on a Saturday night and he was given a kind of opportunity to play He'd been talked about around town. We thought we were going to bring him into the DJing world of the Hacienda. There was only four or five of us who were the regular resident DJs. We never had any guest DJs. It was a very tight ship. And this young guy came uh, to join us and uh, he arrived off his face. And after about four records, he literally had to be dragged off the decks. And, you know, maybe he was nervous. Maybe it was too much for him. Or maybe he'd just been, that was just how he was. But me and the rest and the management were just like, well, he's he's not getting another gig. Who was it? I'm not saying who it was. I mean, you know, to be honest, he went on and he did, you know, he did do pretty well. But, you know, again, that just reinforced my idea that if you want to be a little bit uh, psychological about it, I think also it's exhausting DJing. And you do feel that you're giving the music, you're giving the experience, you're giving a lot of yourself. You're putting yourself on the line, which is a really difficult thing. You know, anyone who does anything in public, he or she put their head above the parapet. It's exhausting and it's pressurized. So as you're DJing, it's almost like the more energy that you're losing and the more pressure you're feeling, the more energy the crowd are getting, the less pressure they're feeling. It's almost like it's a completely one-way thing. So that's often why at the end of the night, I am absolutely exhausted. And the only thing I want to do is go to my bed. And my friends in the audience or anyone in the audience are still jumping up and down and saying, come to the after party, play some more records, come here, come there. Because they've taken everything. I've given them everything and I have nothing left.
1: Uh, your next question uh, from these 45s, question two. Okay, just say stop. Uh, stop. Who are your DJ heroes, then, now and future?
0: Actually, my DJ hero was John Peel. Uh, I mean, I didn't really, when I started out DJing, there weren't club DJs that I followed, but mostly I, I wasn't really interested in being like any other club DJs. I wanted to be like John Peel in the sense that I wanted to be eclectic and I wanted to you know, play maybe obscure stuff that the mainstream were overlooking, and and I like what he played then, and then I think once I'd got used to DJing in clubs, I think Mike Pickering, one of my fellow DJs at the Hacienda who um, was more experienced and about to DJ than me, he was somebody that I really looked up to at the Hacienda Uh, now Laurent Garnier, I think, because Laurent he's evolved into such a creative person he's made music he's established house music and dance music in France but as a human being he's a really genuine warm great human being and obviously in my business and in the music business you can watch people establish a career and lose some of that you know human warmth and genuineness but Laurent's absolutely got that so you know I think yeah Laurent's number one for me
1: does he count as uh, for the future as well? Is there anyone else that's buzzing around that you're hearing good things about that you've
0: seen and loved? Well, of course, the DJ for the future that, I, or the DJ that I follow, who's what you might call a young DJ, although he's probably now 35, is Seth Troxler. And uh, as you may know, a few years ago, I sold my vinyl record collection to Seth. And it was very much a kind of act of passing on the baton to the next generation. And he wanted you know both a piece of history but also the tools you know he 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 wanted to play them not as kind of archive things but as living breathing pieces of music and he's taken them around the world and occasionally he you know he he sends me a picture from peru or somewhere uh spinning one of my records (laughs) in you know the outskirts of lima so he's my favorite for sure
1: do you still miss that collection
0: uh, no, I've never, I've never missed it because uh, I, I really like the fact that Seth has got the records uh, and given them new life. I have access to far more music now than I did in the 1980s when I was DJing a lot and buying them. You know, I, I can find records everywhere, music everywhere. So I've not lost the music. I've just lost the pieces of vinyl.
1: But what about the memories that uh, all that vinyl held for you? Uh,
0: well, I just found I was at a point in my life when I could let go of those memories. Yeah. That's kind of just how it happened. I understand people have a attachment to, to the vinyl, and, and I did, and you're right. You know, each piece of vinyl was a memory, and each piece of vinyl that, that Seth bought from me, I, I could tell you where I bought it from and who I bought it from and what I was doing in my life, you know? So they were important things, but I was okay to let go. Sometimes it's okay to let go. Sometimes it's okay to say, I'm drawing a line under that and I'm moving on.
1: Why did you say earlier that um, Mike Pickering was a a better DJ than you? What do
0: you mean by that? I think that he, uh, technically, he was a a better DJ than me. The technical aspect of of DJing, you know, does interest me a little bit because I think that a lot of the DJs who are remembered now back in the day, say like Larry LeVan, and a lot of the DJs that are revered now, also maybe somebody like Theo Parrish, very big underground DJ. I don't think either of them were, you know, uh, technically amazing. I mean, they were, you know, they were, they're good, but they're not technically amazing. It is for them always about the choice of music being absolutely right. So what's your measure then of of who's best? You have to have that ear. You have to have that taste. Uh, You have to go out on a limb and you have to really feel the music, you know, and Mike Pickering I would say was probably certainly the first major DJ in a major club to play house music. But it grew out, for him, it grew out a lot from funk, soul, go-go, New York, boogie. He was playing all that. So when house music came along, he was already playing the music that was the roots of house. So he was ready for that moment. He was ready for that moment. And so actually, so maybe that, what, what you just said, that was the key. He was kind of ready for the next moment. He wasn't surfing a wave, he was creating a wave.
1: Yeah, he I guess uh, he had the greatest armory at that time, uh, and as well as the, the, I guess it's a natural instinct, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is a natural. And also, of course, Mike had been in a band, Quando Kwango, he went on to be in M People. So say whatever you like about M People, you know, they had an ear for knowing what, people wanting to hear so he also I think probably had a, a more of a musicologist ear than mine I guess I think I would I would say it and, and not fear too many people coming back at me but I've played a few bad records but I would say that my taste in music is probably better than anyone else I've ever met <laughs>
1: yeah
0: but and that's because I really believe in myself when I listen to a piece of music I'm not thinking Is this cool? Is this five stars in Mixmag? Did this person play it? Is it gonna be big? Do I know the person? Are they from Manchester? I don't think of any of that. I just think, does this really go deep inside me? Yeah, I get that. Is this something I really want to share? Yeah. And that's my only criterion.
1: So if it touches your soul, it's it's a yes. It's a yes. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins still to come
0: which song or piece of music do you love playing most i would say that when the moment is right if i play that then i just know that everybody's nerves and emotions are tingling
1: Dave has so dave your next question from uh, the box of 45 you say when when <laughs> what's the best bit in your bio and uh what do you choose to always leave out? I
0: like that you gave a little giggle before asking that. <laughs> the best bit um, in my bio, I, I don't know. But the funny thing is that um, if you Google uh, the legendary Dave Haslam, you get as many hits as if you just Google Dave Haslam. And somehow that kind of word has attached itself to me. And I, I find I don't really necessarily feel that, you know, when I'm queuing at the post office to... Post a parcel and it's raining on me and and I'm getting kind of frustrated and I've got other things I'd rather be doing I don't feel at all legendary I just feel like everybody else feels you know legendary doesn't pay the bills or whatever but it's funny uh so I think I'm kind of somehow proudest of that (laughs) um I realized the other day I was looking through an old diary and I realized that I'd once DJ'd and the guy who played Huggy Bear in Starsky and Hutch actually called Anthony Fargos. Yeah, that sounds right. Very, very cool. I mean, when I was growing up, he was one of the coolest men on TV. I actually DJed at a party and he was there and he was kind of in the VIP area. And I dragged him, not physically, but through the music I was playing near, near the dance floor. And at one point, Huggy Bear from Starsky and Hutch was dancing to my music in front of me and absolutely loving it and I kind of thought the coolest man in the night of the 1970s is, is is giving me a bit of respect and I felt great about that.
1: You're good at keeping a diary and always have been and and that's been to all of our benefit because on social media you share special moments that jog all of our memories. Are you good at, at remembering particular tunes that created special moments let's for example use spike island as an example was there a particular song that you played that really went off
0: well the the song that i remember from spike island was the song right at the end of the concert which was um, redemption song by bob marley uh that absolutely brings back that memory so vividly because earlier in the week i'd had a very brief conversation with ian brown and there were lots of djs so we didn't really know what timings were going to be like what the audience was going to be like but he asked me to when the roses had finished playing to put a record on so that people could be listening to something as they were making their way home from what obviously he and i wanted expected and wanted to be a kind of life-changing experience so i had a conversation with ian about what that track should be and he said redemption song by bob marley so whatever time it was there was some fireworks I think at the end of their set and then I put that on and it was you know it was obviously it's kind of quite moving and emotional because it had been a long day uh and the the lights of the stage had dimmed uh, and and people were marching home dragging themselves home little groups of people and uh, and this music was just playing across spike island it was amazing
1: that's a real moment for anyone that was there and, and has seen the film, The Ian himself, and, and I think that's pretty big of you to to say that. I don't know that I'd uh, give anyone else credit for that special moment. I wondered about when they did the comeback tour, because I wasn't there first time around. Who chose, uh, whether you had a, a part in uh, the conversation about who chose Stone Love to to come on to when they did the comeback?
0: No, I have very little uh, interaction with a lot of those kind of comeback Retro reunion things that happen, to be honest. I've kind of ended up keeping my distance quite a lot from the Hacienda brand, for example, and one or two other retro music brands that I've kept my distance from.
1: Yeah, well, it's about moving forward, I think. We're getting that message from you over and over again. But that said, I want to go back to those nights at Freedom in Yellow at the Boardwalk, mid-80s into the, the 90s. And I wonder, am I right if, if I say that you talked about genres earlier? Did you consciously rebel against being pigeonholed?
0: Well, uh, particularly the yellow night, that started in the middle of uh, the beginning of 1992. Uh, That was a Friday night. And uh, at that point, obviously, there were lots of very, very creative DJs in Manchester, Uh, but they were all, well, not all of them, but most of them uh, were playing house and techno. And a lot of the techno kind of got quite dark, I guess. There were a few DJs around town playing what, you know, uh, old funk, it's a disco, etc. Maybe in a little bit of a train spottery way. Anyway, I decided that on that Friday night, I would go back in a way to playing music that was uh, not all one BPM, that wasn't technified. And I kind of joined the dots between funk, soul, and then the new stuff that was coming out on Talking Loud, The Young Disciples for example, Brand New Heavies, uh, and from the label Mo Wax. And also, I felt like a lot of the music that was being played was kind of hard music, a little bit aggressive. I understood the appeal of it, but I basically set up Yellow as a night where we'd play funk, soul, disco music, either old music, but mostly the newer stuff that was related to that. And I took it even further and I said to my fellow DJs, Jason Boardman and Elliot Eastwick, if we play a record and girls leave the dance floor and boys go on the dance floor, we're never going to play that record again. Write it down. It's banned. Because I just kind of felt like, uh, I've always thought that in clubs, girls are the coolest people. I mean, since then I've DJed a lot of gay nights and I've kind of realised it's not really to do with Uh, gender but at that point I wanted the girls to get on the dance floor I've actually since read Brian Jones who formed the Rolling Stones saying that everywhere the Rolling Stones went in the beginning of the 1960s every little town that they went to it was always the girls who were the coolest I kind of knew what he was talking about you know and and DJing is a lad's industry you know unfortunately and it's very lad heavy Uh, and I think sometimes the music reflects that I just want girls to hit the dance floor every time i played you know a Chucka khan record or a motor bass record and it worked it was every friday for seven years
1: let's um do another question dave say when when who's your favorite uh, warm-up dj and on the subjects of uh, warm-ups what's the art and uh, who would you be most scared to warm up for yourself
0: <laughs> well the art is and not playing all the big tunes that the DJ who's going to follow you is going to play. I had one really terrible experience in Paris. Uh, it was the French premiere of the film Control, the Joy Division film. Yeah, uh, And it was in a beautiful cinema off the Champs-Élysées. And I'd been booked to do a talk before the film, and then the DJ set after but I was told that after the film, there were a few journalists who wanted to interview me. So I said, "Okay, I'll do those interviews." They said, "Oh, we've got uh, another DJ who'll warm up for you uh, in the room next door, where the where the club bit was." So I said, "Okay." So I was about 45 minutes late into getting into that room, uh, and in that time, the warm-up DJ had managed to play, uh, I think, probably the three or four most popular Joy Division records three or four most popular New Order records, most of the back catalogue of the (laughs) cure, and I was left with almost nothing. And people. Um, (laughs) I played Nag 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 by Cabaret Voltaire and cleared the whole room, let alone the dance (laughs) floor.
1: I once played that uh, when I was DJ. I once played that at the uh, wrong
0: speed, and not one person noticed. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fantastic record. So, yeah, my my favourite warm-up DJ, well, I guess I would have to say that... um, Jason Boardman, you know, who who was at Yellow with me at the boardwalk for those seven years. I think often he was a bit frustrated that he didn't get more primetime slots, but he was just happy to be involved. And actually, I think he liked the fact that a warm-up DJ isn't judged by how many people are on the dance floor. They're just judged by the vibe. And Jason was really good at catching the vibe and kind of holding the audience back you know, for the later DJs like me.
1: Where were you happiest, Dave, at the Boardwalk or Hacienda? Uh,
0: Both. I mean, I think, um, can I answer a question you haven't asked me yet?
1: Sure. What is it?
0: (laughs) (laughs) The the question (laughs) is... (laughs) Uh, what's your favourite ever DJ gig? Yeah, okay. That's a good question. It's a great question. Only because I loved the Hacienda and the Boardwalk and I loved being a resident. The great thing about being both those places is I was there for years, a week in and a week out, and you really felt that like you were building a community. And the crowd coming in absolutely trusted you, 100%. So they never whinged if you went a bit off-piste and played something a bit odd to their ears because they knew that you'd bring it back. And that was fantastic being a resident but doing one-off gigs in different parts of the world is also an incredible experience but it's so totally different and the great thing about it is it's totally unpredictable so you could be going to a gig that you think is going to be amazing you know berlin saturday night 3 a.m till 5 a.m in some old warehouse somewhere with a fantastic lineup of djs you imagine that's going to be great and You know, the three or four times I've done a gig like that, they usually are. But then there's other gigs that you think, hmm, okay. The B-side Liquor Lounge in Cleveland, Ohio, a little basement under a liquor lounge, whatever that is, on a Sunday night. I was in Cleveland doing a lecture at a local university, and I just tried to find a DJ gig for that night, just to give myself something to do so I didn't get left with You know, what I thought might be kind of a whole load of boring lecturers taking me out for dinner. Uh, They turned out to be not boring at all. So I arrived at the B-side liquor lounge. I met the guy running the club called Brad. He seemed quite all-American. He'd been phoning me all day saying, let's go for hot dogs and beer. And I arrived and it was empty. And I thought, oh, you know, here we go. And uh, he was full of enthusiasm and the crowd built slowly. And then he said, oh, by the way, I hope you don't mind, but there's somebody's birthday. And uh, I've, I've told them they can all come in for free. I'm like, do it. And uh, within about an hour and a half of opening, the club was filling up really well. And I just, because I had nothing to lose, no one knew who I was. A lot of them had just come out on a Sunday night with no expectations. I just absolutely felt free. And I was just playing everything and anything and just diving in. And uh, Brad was literally on the phone, phoning people. He was next to me in the DJ box. He was shouting to his friends, you've got to come. This is DJing. This is DJing. (laughs) And it was the beginning of MySpace. And he was like, on MySpace, you know. (laughs) And the final hour was just incredible. And at the end, Brad gave me this huge bear hug. And big sweaty Brad (laughs) bear hug. And his sweat was still kind of on me when I got back to the hotel. And that was just the best gig ever. Because it just felt... It was a total one-off and it was totally unexpected. And Brad had a fantastic time and so did I.
1: What's your favourite length for a set,
0: Dave? I think probably three hours. Yeah. I'm happy with anything between one and a half and three and a half. Mm -hmm. In the old days, I'd do five. But I think one of the things that's changed is that, you know, people expect lots of DJs on the bill. I can't quite get my head around some of the bills that I see now where there's, you know, multiple DJs each doing an hour. I think that's kind of weird. I don't think I'd know what to do. <laughs> I like having the freedom to kind of build the set and take it to a few different places and not just be one-dimensional with the music. Oh. So, you know, to feel like you can take it back and be a bit quieter and then be a bit more full-on. But one hour of bangers is, is, for me, by the end of the hour, I'd be bored.
1: So, Dave, the next question here. So, uh, When? When? Which song or piece of music do you love playing most? And I'm going to break this one down. So do you want to answer that first? Okay. Which
0: song or piece of music do you love playing most? I would say that when the moment is right, Massive Attack, Unfinished Sympathy. If I play that, then I just know that everybody's nerves and emotions are tingling. And that is what I want.
1: Yeah and uh, so this is a, a sort of secondary question along the same lines uh, which song holds the best in fact there are two which song holds the <laughs> there are two secondary questions
0: <laughs> which song holds the best memories for you ain't nobody rufus and chaka khan i mean i think i've probably been playing that's probably the record i've played the most times
1: i feel like that's a dave haslam trademark oh
0: yeah i mean and the thing is i Uh, You know, about 15 years ago, I started to be asked to do weddings and I was initially quite resistant because you always have this idea of a wedding DJ. And in fact, even now when people ask me to DJ at their weddings, obviously now I'm a bit older, sometimes it's their second marriage, but anyway, (laughs) uh, and I send them an email about listing all the stuff I won't play. Okay, I'll do your wedding, but I won't play, you know, things like the Proclaimers and Simply the Best and stuff like that. And not because I, I don't, you know, appreciate that music, but because other people, you know, you could book a DJ for 50 quid who'll play that. So I'm like, well, A, I'm quite expensive, and B, you know, I don't play any of this music. Uh, but some of the favourite gigs that I've done in recent years are weddings, because obviously at that point, if they say yes, then they're totally up for me doing the wedding I want to do for them. And, you know, Ain't Nobody by Rufus Chaka Khan is always, you know, the big record of that kind of situation. But it's also something that I've played in, you know, clubs all around the
1: world and the second part of that secondary question which was part of your fifth question so this is part three of well question five but of course there was a a second choice earlier. So God knows, does it really matter? No, not really. Which song have you played the most over the years? I'm guessing that probably is Rufus and Shaka Khan.
0: I think so, or uh, Good Life by Inner City. Yeah. There was a period when I played uh, Mr Big Stuff, Gene Knight. I played that a a lot and I used to play our seven inch single and uh, just near the end, there was a little mark on the record and it used to jump. But, you know, I didn't mind that bit of authenticity. So I just carried on playing. It was it was on the original Stax label, I think, and I'd had it for years. So I just used to know that, oh, the record would jump. And then one day I was out record shopping and I saw it kind of brand new, pristine, 12-inch. I thought, I'm gonna get that. And uh, I put it on the next Friday at the boardwalk. And at the point it normally jumped, of course it didn't jump. And honestly, half the crowd turn to kind of look at me because they'd never heard that record without the jump two and a half minutes in
1: i guess for for anyone listening um who wants to pick up a tip or two other than anything that you've already said uh, already and you've been so honest brilliant stories every single one of them what comes after mr big stuff what what would you suggest what did you used to play most after that
0: i think probably uh Something by James Brown, I would say probably Across uh, the Tracks by Maceo and the Max. Uh-huh. Yeah, a James Brown type record, I think, or um, Hot Pants by Bobby Bird.
1: Yeah. How about turning that into three for a takeaway? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so what have we got? We've got uh, uh, Mr Big Stuff and yeah. we go into Hot Pants by Bobby Bird and then we go into, well, we should, then why don't we go into You've Got the Love by Candy Straton because... We've got the love.
1: <laughs> we sure have uh, all, all for you, legend. <laughs> uh, Dave has the. I can't thank you enough for all of that, Dave. Um, fascinating to hear uh, stories that I've heard bits of before, sound bites, and hearing them in more detail. And and the wow factor. The wow factor is amazing. Uh, and uh, for anyone that. Uh, I guess it would be useful to know for those that love this sort of thing, uh, current tech setup that that you're loving, um, brand names are fine.
0: Yeah, well, I I normally use Pioneer CDJ 2000s and I actually use CDs. I download a lot of stuff. I always pay for the downloads via Juno Download. I think they're probably the best quality. And uh, so I make my own CDs. I take out a big a box of cds and i I play from them and the other thing is i tend not to have the monitor speaker on really loud because i'm trying to keep my ears you know relatively undamaged so i sometimes arrive in a club and the monitor speaker right next to me is absolutely blasting out and i always have to find someone to turn it down
1: and uh, what about headphones
0: i'm wearing bose headphones uh i actually buy quite cheap ones because I have a tendency to stand on them, <laughs> uh, take them off and leave them somewhere, uh, or they're in the back of there's multiple there's not a single taxi company in Manchester that hasn't got one of my pair of headphones in their lost property, I think. Um, so I never pay more than about 60 pounds for my headphones.
1: Uh, all right, one last question, Dave. So there's some kind of non-specific catastrophic event where you have to play the last three records before a global dance floor. I know, where eh? they. Which records would they be?
0: Are these the last records before the apocalypse? Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Um, uh, I'll Be Your Friend by Robert Owens, I think would be one of them. Um, this is for the whole world, right? I will be the friend of the whole world.
1: (laughs) All listening to
0: you. Until the end. And also Robert's vocal is so good. Uh, What else would I play in that situation? Um, I Feel Loved by Donna Summer. Yeah. One of my favourite gigs in in recent years was in Paris. I was in Paris for a while and I met up with a a crew who were doing a regular night in a cabaret bar in Montmartre, uh, a lesbian crew. Doing a lesbian night, and I used to go every week to their little night. And they kind of adopted me as their token heterosexual English friend, man friend. And uh, I used to walk into the club, and the girl used to get on the mic and was like, Dave! And like all all the lesbians would cheer. And they were lovely to me. And uh, they did a big party in a club called Wanderlust on the banks of the River Seine. And they do it once a year. And it, yeah, it's 95% lesbians, 5% gay men and me. And they asked me to do an hour and uh, I did the hour, slightly struggled, but right at the end, I played this really great mix of uh, Donna Summer, I Feel Love, and the lesbians loved it and I loved it. And and just that connection between, on the face of it, you know, what's my connection? Heterosexual, white, Englishman, aged in my 50s, you know, all these young Parisian lesbians. What have we got in common? And I played that record and we had everything in common. And that was, it just felt so right and so important to me. So of the three records, that would be the third. And uh, Robert Owens' I'll Be Your Friend would be the second. And I'd go into that with um, Loving You by Paranoid London, uh, because that's just mental. (laughs) You
1: did that off the top of your head. (laughs) So that's really impressive. And thank you so much, Dave. Thank you. And that's how to DJ. Dave has them. How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us
0: wherever you get your podcasts from.